Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a cultural historian of France with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been debating and consuming culture together ever since we were at university, which feels indeed so long ago that the culture that we were consuming was probably the talkies. Yes, I, th- I think you were Charlie Chaplin, if I remember rightly. And <laughs> <laughs> um, this episode, we're discussing Netflix's uh, series, The Chair. It's, it's a small series. It, it wasn't flashy. It wasn't particularly expensive or high powered like The Crown. But it generated a lot of buzz. And as two academics, we watched it with great interest, along with every other academic in the world. Um, It should be said that although it's a small series, as Zoe says, it has garnered very, very favourable coverage. The Guardian said that Sandra Oh is first class in this Moorish University satire. The Atlantic says it's Netflix's best drama series in years. Although I think we should probably discuss, is drama the right term for this? You know, what is this as a genre? Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? Um, While well, Slate claims that the chair gets academia uncomfortably, hilariously right. Um, and it's a pet peeve of mine, the overuse of the word hilarious. Um, but there is nonetheless a sense that this does hold up a lens to uh, modern academia and some of its problems. Zoe, to start with um, this, this sort of nub of the matter, What do you think is the message or the kind of morality at the heart of this six-part series? Well, I think we should probably just quickly say what happens in it um, for those who haven't watched. So not much. Basically, this (laughs) woman played an an English professor played by Sandra Oh um, of Killing Eve fame becomes the chair of the English department at a stuffy liberal arts um, sort of bottom tier Ivy League university in America on the East Coast. And all hell breaks loose, um, war between generational war. She's being encouraged to get rid of the old, uh, boring old professors who are esteemed. Uh, it used to be titans in the field, but who just don't get the big crowds at the classes anymore. And so it's it's part of this, you know, thing that's very familiar to academics in the UK of almost like pay linked to uh, how much you delight the students and how much demand there is for you. Uh, so obviously there's pushback against that. Um, the real drama begins um, not with the oldies who kind of continue as a sort of weird sideshow and I'm not quite, nothing really seems to happen to them. But when the, one of the most popular professors, um, and, uh, who, who's a poet, I think he's, he's lots of girls adore him. His classes are always packed, is, is going through a bit of a crisis. He's drunk. He turns up and he in, is teaching about modernism and he kind of ends up doing a, a Hitler salute to kind of illustrate his walk through the fascist movements of the of the 20th century and how literature has responded. Of course, the students film this and it goes viral and the rest of the program is about how the chair, Sandra Oh, who has a very close relationship with this professor, deals with the, the fallout from the Hitler salute, um, quote unquote, gaffe, Maybe. exactly. So um, that's the background. In terms of the moral, I actually found it incredibly difficult to find one. What what about you, Tom? I thought what I liked about this series is that it did try to sort of walk a difficult line in the middle of the culture wars that are raving, that are raving, that are raging 
on campuses uh, across the United States. On the one hand, um, it was quite sympathetic to some of the old professors who were struggling to adapt, who were struggling to kind of understand a new generation and their mores. And it did show you how scary some of the indignant students can be. And so it was quite worried, I think, in some ways about the dangers of a new identity politics and a new um, political um, bellicosity, I suppose, or a new sort of political rage that's building among students. But at the same time, it also endorses the idea that the old white professors have had power for too long, that we need new voices, that actually the future lies with the rising African-American professors. And so it wasn't clear exactly what side it was coming down. And it was that sort of pluralism of perspective, the fact that your sympathies constantly moved around that made me think it was quite clever. Um, what worried me, though, is that underneath the humour, and it's sort of largely played for comedy, the vision it paints of American university life was harrowing. Um, there is a piece in The New Republic that I really liked, which said that the chair is actually an elegy for the life of the mind. Um, and there is something really alarming about what it says about the value of education or the crisis of the humanities or what students increasingly are demanding from their professors. Um, it made me quite grateful that I'm not teaching at an American university, I suppose. And, I, and although this was played for laughs and it's a kind of sitcom, it did suggest that something is quite rotten with the academic system. I mean, I suppose what you're saying is that students are demanding ideological purity rather than mm. engaging, you know, learning, essentially. They, they can't possibly learn because they've already decided what the material is supposed to be and what it's supposed to teach. And if it's presented in the wrong way or if it contains the wrong things, no matter how historical, uh, they will reject it and they will um, try to destroy the person who was trying to teach them. So in that context, it's true, a university can't function. The other issue which I raise, you know, which comes through, and this is obviously the sort of trying to please students um, as the kind of basis of a pay structure or, or an employment yeah. policy. And of course, if you're trying to please students who are ideologically demented and demanding, <laughs> uh, you are going to have to play that game. And it did show it's sort of untrendy to teach actual things, I suppose. But on the other hand, you know, you did have they, they played up this contrast between the, the, the amazing young black professor who is teaching the Moby Dick uh, in a very kind of raced, gendered way, but, you know, lets them tweet their best lines from it compared to the old former star of the field who gets no one in his class who, you know, just was, who's kind of shocked by the fact that she's using Twitter. But that kind of stuff, that kind of pedagogical disagreement between new and old, I thought that was all a bit dishonest. That's not what the issue is. The issue is mm. not about young, amazing professors utilizing social media and teaching tools in innovative ways. The issue is about the evil, the moral evil that the collective is basically adding up to at the moment and what they're baying for and what it does, as you say, mean for the life of the mind. And, and just saying it's an elegy for the life of the mind, let's be clear, it's an elegy for things that are actually very, very important in, in, throughout society, not just in university settings or learning settings, but everything to do with truth and fairness and individuality and 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 you know ideological diversity and debate and free speech basically everything the west was founded on so you might as well just call it an elegy for the west that's what i would say um the, thank you for that hannah arendt meets harold bloom i don't know you know <laughs> what radical evil and the closing of the western mind you know Alan bloom i'm all about radical about. evil i mean look why <laughs> hold back so before we get to the evil that supposedly is at the heart of this i would say 
it's very interesting what you say about money, because I think it is important to remember that in an American university system, these students are obviously all loaded with unbelievable amounts of debt. Um, and as a result, the question of the metrics of student experience and the metrics indeed of the university more broadly in terms of getting donors on board, chasing money is shown to be really important. And so I was interested in how Sandra Oh is trying to defend the humanities at key points and sort of stand up for the value of English while recognizing that behind that, she's actually having to do all these sort of very compromising business deals to just try and keep the department open. And actually the students increasingly think, well, what's the value of these English degrees when I need something that will help pay back my tuition in years to come? So I like the sense that there's something existential about the survival of the English department from the moment that um, Sandra arrives, she sort of says, maybe I've come to the party when it's already too late. And the series is willing to ask, you know, will the humanities as we understand them survive into the next 30, 40 years under the kind of the, and the current financial structures that they're having to operate? And um, you also said pedagogy doesn't matter, Zilbo. And I think there is something substantial in the pedagogy. And let me give you an example. At one point in the series, there's the discussion about Melville, as you say, Moby Dick. And the students say, oh, well, you know, can we talk about the fact that Melville is a wife beater? Uh, and the old professor, Elliot, just brushes this off. You know, he thinks it's not relevant. He wants to move on. The younger professor, Yaz, says, yeah, we should absolutely talk about that next week. And I suppose we are coming to the core of the issue, which is, is a literature programme about literary texts or is it being reduced to politics? And the sense that the biography of the author or the biography of the, of the writer is as much relevant as what they wrote is, I think, threatening to undermine what we thought these disciplines were set up to do at their foundation. And so these questions of pedagogy, they're not just about style, I suppose. They're about who sets the intellectual agenda and whether students should be the one who, as you say, decide to cancel particular authors or delegitimize them on the basis of often pretty poorly understood historical background. Well, exactly. Um, and obviously what this whole program is trying to get at is, 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 the, is cancel culture set against the people that they are kind of baying to cancel, set against, as you say, the existential threat to not only to uh, humanities departments, but to universities in general. So I basically would ask you now, Tom, you know, if you think that it handled the cancel culture question, honestly. I think it did not. I think we all know that cancel culture is the handmaiden of a particular kind of bit of the culture war, which is mostly concerned with two things, anti-racism and trans rights. That is where cancel culture lives. It's not concerned with class. It's not really concerned with gender anymore. It was briefly during Me Too, perhaps. Those are where it's concerned. It is not concerned with anti-Semitism. In fact, the opposite. Jews are always left out. Anti-Semitic incidents are soaring on campus. So I think that the nub of this is also a deep dishonesty about, and actually it's an anti-Semitic dishonesty, frankly, now that I'm using Oof. terms like radical Oof. evil. Yeah, at the heart of this. It is using, it is using a kind of assumption that students will care about a Hitler salute on behalf of Jewish students when that is not how this works. They may care about it you know, because of fascism and fascism is an easy way to then think about racism. Hmm. But we needed a professor to be saying, 
the n-word in context in from a text we needed a professor to do something that could be accused of being cultural appropriation of black culture we needed something like that that would have gone to the heart of the hornet's nest not this kind of cop-out as if anybody would cancel anyone over something that could be linked to anti-semitism that has literally never happened in the history of the world <laughs> what do you, I mean, do, do you think to... i'm being unfair tom no i think you're right there is something very unconvincing about the gaffe in question and the idea that either that it would mobilize students in the way that it does or that it reflects what are the real politics that are happening in on campuses at the moment i agree they 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 were too scared i think yeah um amanda so they used they the hid behind yeah. to address the questions yeah. around you know transgender rights for instance and so they went for this relatively kind of soft low easy low-hanging fruit that feels a little bit disingenuous i also thought it was curious that there is that jewish student in it um yeah. daphna yeah. Um, and it would have got interesting if it had gone into a more um, Oleana kind of yes. um, terrain in that there is a very unprofessional relationship growing between her with the crush on the aforementioned teacher and how far in his vulnerable state he's willing to entertain or encourage these inappropriate behaviours from her. And I thought we were going to get into quite interesting blurred, blurred kind of... Um, blurred lines of responsibility and the sort of erotics of education and again it wimped out it didn't really want to go there no, it um, go although there. I think that mammoth play really does still hold up and still has a lot to say for the current moment absolutely I mean David Mammoth's play Oleana does does have a lot to say uh, and I was glad I got to see it recently um, about those kind of sexual the erotics of, of pedagogy as you say but I think what's interesting where where it failed to go anywhere where it failed to ignite again is again this Jewish thing I mean the, the girl is she she's Jewish she is aware of anti-semitic incidents growing on campus but she supports him she isn't offended mm. by the Hitler salute she she fancies him and then she wants his help and that would have been really interesting this wasn't supposed to be about anti-semitism on campus uh, or no sorry it's not even supposed to be about cancel culture in defense of Jews who are the victims of anti-Semitism beyond campus. It was supposed mm. to be about something to do with the, the cancel culture that we know about that emerged from sort of a Black Lives Matter moment and before, you know, just I'm bewildered. I just think going for the Hitler thing was just the most sort of strange way to kind of say nothing in the end. So, so in a way, that was just an effective way of, of keeping the audience perhaps just at a kind of fairly kind of low emotional ebb i mean not low but mm. calm you know most audiences couldn't can stay calm watching this and maybe the the emphasis then we're allowed to then be interested in the story of sandra O oh and her bizarre and hilarious adoptive daughter juju <laughs> who stole uh, the show who stole the show she's mexican by birth has a korean name um is like very inappropriate uh but is kind of a genius well, how do you think that whole thing plays in i suppose that's a that is a race and a cultural and a heritage politics playing out in her own home i think what i'd say briefly just to you know, what you said a minute before is important to say that the center of gravity of this show is the faculty and i think part of the problem with it is that we don't really ever get a kind of diagnosis of the students they are instead just a sort of rabble often quite a frightening sort of song culotte type rabble yeah. that we never really get to see the world through their eyes. And I guess that's partly because other um, shows that have been set on campuses, like Dear White People, have tried to do that vision of politics on campus through the, the eyes of students, and this is instead through the eyes of their instructors. 
Yeah. Um, but it does mean that there's something, there is a sort of odd disconnect um, and just a sense of sort of generational impasse. Uh, as you say, Juju is absolutely delightful. I think she she's probably the, the best thing in it. And I found the relationship between her and her mother, um, the Sandra O's character, really compelling. Actually, one of the most interesting things in it, precisely because it is a very difficult relationship. And I thought the show was quite honest about the anxieties around adoption um, and a child kind of trying to navigate two different cultures and a mother constantly feeling that she will never be fully loved or accepted by her child. All of that seemed quite honest and interesting. Um, I was much less persuaded by um, Sandra Oh and uh, the relationship with Bill, like the romantic no. intrigue yeah, me too. in it, yeah. I no. thought was a joke, actually partly because he is himself like a child. This kind of badly behaving academic is like some sort of goofy teenage beatnik it's like another <laughs> messy person that she has to look after and it does just make you feel Sandra oh you know is, is makes her even more of a mom um yeah. and so I didn't buy the romantic subtext at all also refreshingly Sandra oh in this is just not hot she's not hot yeah. uh she's not an object of lust she is spark Menno in all of the roles she plays she always is one but she's she's you know because she's great fun and she's got real character it's nice to have a, a heroine like that um, she's a very um, kind of nice actress to watch, but but it does sort of slightly, you know, it, I guess on one hand, it makes the, the romantic interest from Bill more sort of relatable, but it also, yeah, she she just didn't feel like a romantic leading lady in this to me. It was nice as um, a kind of character to see a different uh, role being given to um, an, an Asian American actress and nice that it's ji as well. Like it's not anglicized. Um, I thought she was quite believable and of all of her various feisty hot mess female characters I thought you know she she grows in stature with each one and I thought she did really well with this so do you think there's something worth just dwelling on briefly in the way that as you know she's Asian she's Korean she's playing an Asian professor occasionally she tries to put in a word in and use her Asianness to kind of foster a sense of um solidarity with Yaz the the black professor I was sort of interested in how Asian was being pitted against black because that's obviously a big issue in American academia. You know, the, the the scandal at Harvard and where there's essentially been, you know, effectively been quotas on on Asian um, as in Far Eastern students. Um, so I just thought, did did you think they they again was that just another dead end here? I thought it was interesting, and I thought it was it captured exactly the ambiguity of Asian American professors who. Um, in the eyes of their peers are probably less threatening or perhaps more easily accepted than African-American rising scholars, but who nonetheless also want to try and build a sense of solidarity as minorities. So I thought it, it captured her dilemma, you know, being between the new generation and the old guard really nicely. And um, what it didn't capture so well, I suppose, is like her own intellectual life. Like it was much more interested mm. in her as a manager. You know, as I say, this was almost like an academic version of The Office. Yeah. This is about like how you manage a team and kind of you know, white collar work in a way. Mm, um, a very mm. weird kind of white collar mm. work, but nonetheless sort of white collar work. You only get glimpses of her being this person who was once passionate about Emily Dickinson. Um, yeah. And you, there's a nice speech where she says, you know, they're going to turn up and say, what's this Asian lady doing teaching Emily Dickinson? Yeah. And it's exactly that kind of uh, allegation or that assumption that I think is really worrying that mm. somehow she's, that she shouldn't be talking about 19th century white American literature because why exactly. isn't she talking about her heritage? It's mm. that move that I think is really alarming. Yeah. And it would have been quite nice to 
you know, probe a little bit more about how she places herself in relationship to the canon, you know, to what, to what extent um, mm. her racial identity she thinks is relevant for the way that she mm. reads literature. Mm. Absolutely. So, Tom, as as the as the real academic between us, oh, uh, the, the, on, the jobbing academic, how how well do you think this overall captures the essence of the culture wars on campus and academia, and not only among students, but the kinds of questions that you, as a lecturer, are constantly having to engage with? Does this program understand actually what it is to be an academic? I think it it captures something about the academic career and the academic world, which is that it's not very motivated by money. Um, it's a world that's overwhelmingly about little forms of symbolic recognition mm. and little symbolic forms of prestige. And often that doesn't make for very exciting TV, but it, it does understand that the stakes are small objectively, but matter hugely for the individuals that are involved. And so I thought it, it navigated that quite well. Um, and it should be said that as well as Amanda Peet, the other writer... Um, I think it actually gone through, yeah, Julia Wyman had gone through both Harvard as a PhD student and Stanford. So this is a view from the inside a little bit. The thing it captures that I am worried about is students feeling that they have some say over appointments and some say over tenure. So to come back to that Yaz mm. story, you know, that the students feel that there absolutely has to be given um, a chair to a rising African-American scholar because she must be the victim of systematic discrimination and they are the ones who should be insisting to the college that this happens. Now, to me, students, although they are very valuable interlocutors and it's great, you know, we should feel that education to an extent comes out of learning from each other. They should not feel that they have control over university appointments, over the kind of the management of the university. I do think that a certain sort of power structure needs to be preserved it makes me very very old guard but I think it's important and it what this is program is all about is that sort of slipping um in cultural democracy where standards are increasingly being judged by students you know the student as consumer decides whether they want to learn that thing whether they are as you say competent to judge is a different matter but they are the ones deciding what is being offered and that power struggle that shift I think this series did at least diagnose, even if it doesn't actually want to explore the difficult places that that leads to. What did is, you think, so? Well, I was going to just ask, is there a world in which students deciding what they learn and who teaches them it could be good? I mean, I'm just going to push back as mm. devil's advocate. Somehow I agree. I think it's bad, but why? I think you only know what's valuable once you've been through something, dare I say. And it comes back to what you suggested earlier, Zoe, which is, the idea that at 18, um, you know, you are in a position to, to know why Kant is a good thing or a bad thing, or why you can afford to know about Rousseau or not. It just seems to me when you let the student dictate what matters as their education, um, you are in a, in a sort of dangerously consumerist model where you abandon any sense that there are some things that might just be very helpful to know or things that help make sense of parts of you know, European or non-European culture, um, and you instead reduce it to a service where the student is the one who, who decides what they, what they learn, that to me is, is alarming. I think this Although is a, I think student needs should be taken into consideration, I certainly don't think they should have, they should be yeah. able to dictate. I mean, I think that's coming down too soft on it to call it a consumerist issue. It's not just students as consumers. That's not what bothers, that is half of what bothers people. 
The other half is authoritarianism among students, little, mm. little, little Robespierre's going around saying, it's not that they're saying we'd like this and we'll pay for you for it. And if you don't do it, we won't pay for it. They're saying, if you don't do this, we're going to trash your career and call you racist. That's yeah. the nub of it for me. In yeah. terms of how, um, you know, how does it represent? I mean, I, I just think it, it doesn't get anywhere near kind of the reality of what's going on on, on American campuses because it insisted on using this stupid Hitler salute thing, which isn't, mm. that's not what it's about. It, the savaging of lecturers is, is happening for things that are perceived to be racist. To me, it didn't go there. It didn't go to the right place. I also think there's something very American about it. I don't think we have the same culture in the UK of these extremely, you know, firstly, tenure isn't really the same system here. It's like you get hired. If you pass probation, you have a permanent position. This sort of deified tenure thing in America, tenure track. And then also the wealth, the American professors, I mean, you say academics don't do it for money, but they they do get paid a lot more. The stakes just seem higher in America overall. They also take the arts way more seriously. And the students are that bit more insane. I mean, that has become just well known. The American campuses are just mad. Medical lecturers in medical schools can't even say the words women or men because they're afraid that they're going to be accused of being transphobic. So they actually just have to avoid teaching parts of disease and anatomy that involve using those words. So there's actually kind of really bad stuff going on there. So I think this, this was just a bit of a joke, really. It didn't get there. It was fun. I thought it was actually very thin. I watched it because everybody was raving about it. I think in the end, I couldn't really piece together why the different storylines, the sort of old people banding together, nothing really seemed to come of that. The kind of Chaucer, feminist Chaucer lecturer who got overlooked. Okay, but like, how did that fit? She gets a coup at the end, doesn't she? She does get Yeah, but what is she about? Mm. Other than a lovely turn from the actress Holland Taylor, who is wonderful. Yeah, uh, but what what is that about? And then the, the drama with Bill and his daughter. What's that? I mean, who? Why do we care if this professor is having a meltdown? Why do we care if this other professor has been overlooked because of sexism? Yeah, we sexism obviously was a thing. It, it was just unclear, like what era and what issues are we actually tackling here? It's meant to be twenty twenty one because so much of the setting with the, the you know the portraits of the old white men and the panel rooms did make it feel sometimes that it wasn't contemporary, like it was a sort of funny sort of 90s period piece or something yeah something that was sort of yeah. happening now yeah exactly um, I also think it was not satisfying at the end partly because it's you know one of the nice things is it's a short series you can do the whole thing of three hours but at the end when Joan the old Chaucer professor gets to be chair and um Ji-Yoon instead is um, retired from that position and just goes back to the regular faculty rather than that being a demotion she's delighted because the actual secret here is that no academic wants to be chair of their department. Yeah. Like, this is why the chair is not like succession. It's yeah. not like the scramble yeah. to get to the top of exactly. the ladder. Isn't it brilliant? Yeah. It's the Most reverse scramble. researchers, yeah. nobody, nobody wants to fill that chair. Yeah. They can yeah. avoid it. Yeah. So it's, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a poison chalice. But it does mean that the end, as a result, feels weirdly anticlimactic. You're like, well, mm-hmm. she got out of it. Hooray, good for her. Yeah, 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 um, ab- very much so. <laughs> so why the hype, Tom? Um, so I think the hype probably is down to the performances. Uh, and as I said, Holland Taylor is great. I also think the guy who plays Elliot, uh, Bob Balaban is great. We really like Juju. Um, I think clearly people like stories set on university campuses. It's worth remembering that series Community that actually ran for six seasons and was a huge hit in the US. Um, and I also mentioned Dear White People earlier as well. Like There is still a desire for, for these sorts of stories. And the sense that campuses are places where ideas are being 
tested and where the kind of culture war is is being sort of enacted. And overall, though, I think people liked this because it gave them a glimpse into that world, but in a very gentle and accessible way. This was academia without any of the kind of abstruse intellectual content. Um, it really was also a kind of family sitcom. It was a very easily digested version of an academic struggle. And as I say, as you suggested, sort of a slightly fairy tale version of that struggle that really doesn't want to ask the difficult questions. Mm. Zoe, yeah. why the hype? Well, no, I just completely agree with you. People like a campus uh, romp. They like to see clear binaries between old, boring white people being facing the sack with like the demands of modernization and then the kind of up and coming young black women. So you can sort of see everybody's perspective. It's it's not uncomfortable viewing and yet it feels political. So I think it's like, oh, we can just turn the culture, which is actually quite a stressful thing into a piece of clever entertainment that we can all watch and not have huge mm. rows about. And obviously I think Sandra Oh, people just love her. But I have to say, I'm not quite sure. I, I'm, I'm actually still quite mystified. I'm mystified. I think I suppose everyone, you know, the people, the generation who went to university when all yes. the professors were like those fusty white old guys and girls or the odd girl, it'll be interesting to them because this is part of memory. It's evoking a kind of a past that a lot of people will both remember and remark upon the way it's being dismantled now. So I think that's probably why. I think, I think, Zoe, it's definitely not made for students. I think it's made yeah. for you and I who are becoming fusty old white people. Well, I think like, it's not made, it's for, made us. for us. It's made for boomers, and we're not boomers. <laughs> okay, let's just be very clear. We're old millennials. We're not boomers. I think it's, it's we're even too young to, to watch it. Join us next time for Laura Dodsworth's State of Fear, which we were meant to do this time, but uh, we will do our best to get to it for next time. 